Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Mic Drop. Uh, you are here on the Colin app, a place where you can get any one of your favorite podcasts, either here on the Colin app or at most of the places you get your podcast subscription, Spotify, Apple, wherever you um, fill up your queue. Uh, thank you all for joining. I'm going to be talking a little bit about the Georgia Senate race because I'm starting to see some anomalies uh, with some of the polling data out there. And I want to make sure that I bring this to your attention because uh, right now, as I've shared with you, a lot of people who have followed me or followed for some time knows that what I'm really looking for is what I call movement and fluidity in the polling data. And what the beauty of what's happened over the course of the past few years is we're able to find, um, with polling averages, polls of polls like 538 or Real Clear Politics, uh, or a handful of other gra- aggregators, we can now start looking uh, not just at the, the, the similarities of movements in polling. For example, are women moving more towards the Democrats because of Roe, uh, Roe Wade going away, the Dobbs decision? Are married people, uh, married women specifically, moving because of the Uvalde shooting crisis uh, massacre? Um, or um, are Republicans moving off of the GOP generic ballot because of January 6th, but in comparing poll to poll, we can start looking, get this kind of beautiful mosaic of what's happening um, across instruments, across different research instruments, and there are a couple of startling gaps. One of them that I've mentioned and spoken about here on Mic Drop and have been tweeting about quite a bit is this peculiarity of the difference between Joe Biden's support levels, which remain at a, at a historic low, kind of a frightening low if you're a Democrat under normal circumstances, uh, and the Democrats' uh, generic ballot performance, which has been remarkably resilient given the stiff headwinds of an unpopular president of your party and these truly astonishing numbers of the wrong direction, uh, right track numbers. So fully, you know, 77% of Americans think uh, the country's headed in the wrong direction. Um, and so these anomalies um, become really, really important. And the one I want to talk about is this gap that Stacey Abrams continues to have, that continues to kind of, um, what's the right word? It continues to, to, to haunt uh, the campaign, at least at this point in the election cycle. And let me explain a little bit about what I mean by that. Um, as I mentioned, there, there is a, a remarkable overperformance of Democrats on the generic ballot, given the fundamentals of this election cycle as they're heating up. By a large majority, a large plurality rather, most Americans are still citing inflation and economic concerns as the top issue that is on their mind at this point in time. Uh, that is never good. That is never good for a party that controls uh, both the House, Senate, and the White House. Uh, historically, uh, the party in power does particularly poorly um, in the midterm elections, right? This is all stuff that we know. And again, as I mentioned, Biden's approval ratings um, are at a historic low, not just for him, but for, for any president, at least at this point in his term. The, these are three uh, data points that I, I consider fundamentals. There, there's a historical track record that create the condition of the environment for voters uh, to be looking through. This is the lens that they are viewing America and their government uh, at at this point in time. Not good, by the way. These are not good for the Democrats. But, but the resiliency of Democrats is is something that is is 
is quite remarkable. Uh, it's not that astonishing for, for, for Republicans. The Republicans have always had, I believe, a, a motivation advantage in virtually every election, um, with the possible exception of, of, of you know, maybe like George Bush's um, second midterm elections, which was a horrible year for Republicans because of the, the war. If you look at 2008, there was no way that John McCain was going to win that race. Just the Republican base itself was completely, completely flatlining. There was no interest, no enthusiasm for any more appetite for Republican presidents. And there was just no way that, that John McCain was ever going to win that race. Having said that, the challenge for Democrats has always been, historically been a turnout problem. It's getting medium to low propensity voters especially minority voters, voters of color. Um, as many of you know, I talk about Latino voters um, ad nauseum. Uh, this has been a big part of my study. Why aren't Latinos showing up to the polls? Um, and 18 to 25-year-olds, right, this younger demographic. And it's not just a Gen Z-specific problem. It's, it's been a problem since, since 18-year-olds won the right to vote uh, during the Vietnam War. They had one big bump in that year. Even in the 2008 Obama cycle, there was a small but marginal uh, measure, uh, a number of, of young voters who actually showed up to vote. But, but 98% of, of the election cycles since the mid-70s, since, since the Vietnam War, there has been a, a depressed lower number of, of young voters. 18 to 25-year-old voters are just extraordinarily hard to have show up and vote. Which brings me to this Georgia Senate race. And in crunching numbers, looking at polling data all day, I keep seeing this anomalous figure where, where Stacey Abrams is not getting the numbers that other Democrats seem to be getting. Now, some of this is absolutely specific to Georgia. No question. The, the, the Warnock-Walker race is obviously an important one, um, and it has its own set of cartoonish dynamics. I mean, I can't believe... Uh, Herschel Walker's campaign is is competitive, uh, let alone still alive. I mean, it just it just tells you how just nuts the environment is. Um, he would have been, you know, a zombie candidate. DOA, the Republicans would have been stuck with with his body pulling down the weight uh, of the ticket in that state in any other circumstance, except we're in this bizarre era. Uh, but Abrams and Kemp, you know, this is a rematch. It gives us, it gives us an apples-to-apples apples comparison. The turnout, of course, is going to look a little bit different because of some of the dynamics, but it's not too often you get these apples-to-apples apples comparisons, these oranges-to-oranges oranges comparisons. Like, we can literally look precinct by precinct and take a good look at what Stacey Abrams uh, did and when she performed the last time she ran for governor of Georgia against Kemp. Uh, some would argue she won. She would argue she won. Um, and now, four years later, the same candidates kind of squaring off again and taking a look at the fundamentals of the race through both of these lenses. By the way, if you're interested in asking a question, go ahead and shoot them into the chat if you want to write them down. It's much easier for me to, uh, to take them. Um, if you want to jump up on stage and ask the question, you can jump into the queue there uh, and ask that question. If it's specific to Stacey Abrams uh, or the Georgia race, that's fine. Love to have that conversation. But if it's about anything else, um, again, I'm looking at numbers all day, every day. So um, if, if I haven't looked at it, um, I, can, I can pull it up right here on the computer screen in front of me and take a look at, at, at some of the races that you're looking at or questions that you've got. But back to Georgia. Georgia is, is 
um, showing this continuing lag for Stacey Abrams behind Kemp. And she is in a weaker position than Warnock is. We can argue that's because Walker is such a weak candidate. Um, we can argue that Kemp, uh, for, for, for whatever reasons, has become a stronger candidate. And I want to I visit with that issue a little bit. Uh, we can argue it's the national dynamics, but I, I'm, not, I'm not really buying a whole lot of that. When I'm looking at the cross-tabulations, when I'm looking at what Stacey Abrams' performances are like, she is dramatically overperforming with the youth vote, which makes any campaign really, really nervous. And I say this as somebody who's worked at the highest levels on both sides of the aisle. Again, you know you know me by now. It's, it's a rare uh, place I... I, I fill in here in the political spectrum. There's not a whole lot of people that have done uh, campaigns at, at you know, the levels that I have on both sides. I say that not to, not, not to, be, uh, to make any other point than I know a, a candidate that has got some, some fundamental issues, and when you are reliant on the youth vote, you're generally in trouble, okay? And again, I'm not going to suggest that this isn't surmountable. What I'm going to suggest is we're sitting about a mid-July time frame. We're closing on the 100-day window. Once we get into that 100-day windows, the fundamentals of a campaign, the frame, as it were, have essentially been set. That doesn't mean there isn't going to be movement. Not saying that. There's going to be movement. There always is. Campaigns matter. I've spent my life doing campaigns. I believe in them. They matter. But the framing of the candidate has largely begun to settle, and you start to look for things like, how solid is my candidate in my own base? What are the fundamentals, again, of the race that we're looking at? I just mentioned uh, three of the most significant ones for this election cycle, at least as I see them for the Democrats and two on the Republican side. Abrams has trouble in two areas. And... I guess there's a way of looking at this by saying Warnock is actually uh, doing better and Abrams is doing weaker. Um, and, and maybe that's a more optimistic way to say it if you're a Democrat who's really looking and, and hopeful about Abrams's chance here. Uh, maybe what we can say is, uh, you know, um, Warnock has somehow been able to consolidate uh, the vote combination, the, the voter group combination that he needs to put himself in a better position to win this thing. But... I'm convinced that, that Abrams has, is over-reliant on a couple of different demographics that are going to be challenging for her to bring this thing home. Again, I'm not making any predictions right now. I probably will in the, in the fade of this thing as we get closer to the election cycle. I think we're going to get a clearer look at not just this race, but all of the races, the, who's going to control the Senate and what the House outlook looks like. But here's my prognostication. Abrams has, is over-reliant on 18 to 25-year-olds. She's winning over 60-40. She's, she, she's doing better than any one of the four statewide candidates in Georgia right now by a good margin. Uh, that's good news. The, the bad news is when you're over-reliant on a base that has historically underperformed, it's a risky bet no matter how you look at it. There's just no two ways of looking at it. That's just, that's just cold, hard campaign facts. And when, when pollsters are modeling, they take that into account, as they should. And what I mean by that is even though 18 to 25-year-olds may make up hypothetically 30% of the population, they will probably only make up 18, 19% of the voters in, in that same universe, in that same group. 
So you don't, when you're doing a poll, you don't wait. You don't have 30% of your responses coming from 18 to 25-year-olds. You have 18 or 19% of the respondents coming from 18 to 25-year-olds. It stands to reason. The waiting, as Tom Petty once said famously, the, the waiting is the hardest part. It's literally getting how you weight that certain demographic in a poll to be accurate enough with what the turnout projections look like to make sure that your poll is accurate. And in this scenario, because of Biden's weaknesses with 18 to 25-year-olds uh, specifically, and Democrats' lackluster excitement, there's an enthusiasm gap with younger voters, there's a less likelihood that younger voters are going to show up, not just in Georgia, but nationwide. Now, there's a lot of people, especially on social media, saying that's not true, that's not the case. We're going to, you know, Gen Z is going to show up in, in record numbers. I had a good friend of mine who I think is one of the best young minds in America, Jack Cotterella, worked with me on the Lincoln Project on. There was talking about some of these strategies. Will they work? They could work. Um, but I'm also, I would be neglect if I wasn't looking at 30 years 50 years, really, but at least 30, uh, from my frame of reference, of, of experience and, and um, hard evidence of saying that this voter demographic just doesn't show up. Um, and, and Abrams doesn't need huge numbers here, by the way. If she gets, if she's able to somehow correct for this enthusiasm gap, it is quite possible that she could... Um, she could prove everybody wrong. She could bring this, bring this race back into contention and start, start hammering away at camp and start making a difference. But for a moment, I believe youth vote is, is, a, is an issue um, for Abrams. And I, and I think it's, it's a considerable one because she's so over-reliant on those for her favorables and her polls. The second, and this is where Abrams did prove everybody wrong, myself included. The last time she ran for governor... Uh, she, her operation had an extraordinary get-out-the-vote program, built remarkable, amazing, jaw-dropping infrastructure, and was able to turn out a, a, uh, specifically a black vote in a way that Georgia had not seen. There's a growing Latino community. The numbers were 30,000. You guys know I work closely with Chuck Rocha. Chuck did a lot of good work in Georgia. We were, we were sharing a lot of information back and forth in the 2020 cycle, but I'm talking, of course, about the 2018 cycle. Uh, she was able to overperform what most pollsters guessed, which is what really put her into contention. And then there's this third element, this third group, which is the group that, that the Lincoln Project, uh, and I was very obviously involved with, with this voter, voter targeting demographic, these college-educated suburban women who have kind of had it with the GOP. They're, they're, they're very... Um, anxious about whether the Democrats can be a moderate party or whether they're going to be consumed by the left. And this is a real critical, critical constituency for a Stacey Abrams. Really critical. In fact, this is where Warnock, if you look at the cross tabs, this is where Warnock is performing better. He's, he's proven to this constituency that he's not going to be this crazy, far-left, woke senator who's going to be advancing kind of these uh, really progressive issues. He's dememonstrated and, and has uh, th this relationship with the voters of Georgia that he's going to be kind of a centrist candidate. When you compare him to Herschel Walker, you start to see him opening up these 10-point leads 
in the Quinnipiac poll or seven-point leads um, in uh, USA Today surveys. There's a consistent Warnock lead that I think is just as likely to hold as it is going to be for Kemp to hold his lead over Abrams. So three constituencies. Quick recap. 18 to 25-year-old voters. Stacey Abrams, I think, is over-reliant on this constituency. The turnout model, which is usually another big variable that Democrats have, Abrams has proven twice in a row that she can get these voters to, to turn out in contention in a way that makes her competitive and actually carried the state in part, in part by Joe Biden. And this is where progressives really uh, want to attack me because everybody thinks that Stacey Abrams somehow did uh, you know, carry Georgia all by herself. That, that's quantifiably not true. We absolutely needed what she did. It was remarkable. Like I said, it was, I've never seen those numbers before, but those numbers alone don't get you there. Even if she brings those first two home, here's her big problem. It's college-educated, suburban, Republican women. Stacey Abrams did not turn those voters out for Joe Biden. Okay, The Lincoln Project did. That was the work that we were doing. And here's the, here's the real important uh, data point. We moved these voters nine points, nine percentage points of these voters did not vote for Donald Trump. They voted for Joe Biden. If you look at the results in Gwinnett County, DeKalb County, the counties surrounding the urban core of Atlanta, this is where Biden moved that suburban vote. This is where we were pushing Republicans to move off of Donald Trump. That combined with Abrams' capacity to overperform historical standards with minority voters, that's how you win Georgia. You can't do just one. You can't do just two. You've got to hit on all cylinders with all three. You have to. Okay? Warnock is there. Warnock's, you know, he's got to start letting the cement dry right now and start, and start locking this race up. And then if, if he starts to pull further ahead from Herschel Walker, you will see Warnock start reaching into the, his own voter base and communicating on behalf of Abrams to bring the, his base that he set in stone to come home, hopefully, for Abrams. But Stacey Abrams is not there. And she's one of the few Democratic candidates nationally that is having difficulty putting this race into play while most other Democrats are. And again, it's the strangest thing because basically what I'm arguing is there's an anomaly inside an anomaly. The Democrats should not be doing as well as they are right now. And we've got to pay attention to that data point. It matters. It matters, right? You can't just ignore it and say, oh, that's anomalous. That doesn't make sense. The Democrats, the, most of the base is coming home. After Wade, after Uvalde, the, 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 the refrigerator hum of the January 6th hearings, this cumulative effect already in July is doing something that is not typical for Democrats. It's become more typical during the Trump era because I think Democrats, even lower information Democrats, lower propensity Democrats, as we call them, propensity meaning lower likelihood to vote, have been coming home. They have been showing up in greater numbers than we have been uh, expected to see them in for 20 years prior to that, they understand what's at stake. Okay, they get it. Democrats are getting it. And they're coming home in places like Wisconsin and Nevada 
If you look at Ohio's numbers, man, I'm still a little bit shocked by this because I've seen polling data, I think you've all seen it, where J.D. Vance is falling uh, behind Ryan. I, I, it's just too early for me to say that's real, but I can't deny that, it, that something's happening. There's something happening on the ground, okay? Um, if you look at um, uh, Oz, right, and Fetterman, Right. This is Fetterman. I think I think squashes Oz. By the way, I don't, that, this is just a, bit, a lot being made about this race. Pennsylvania is a bluer state than post, most people think it is. I think Georgia is a bluer state than most people think it is. Okay, that state has been trending Democrat for a while. That's again what gives me pause with the Abrams dynamic. What is it about Stacey Abrams that is turning off white college educated women? When, when a Raphael Warnock is able to close with them? That's, I mean, that's a question. I want to hear your thoughts on it. Again, I, nobody knows yet, and I don't know if this polling is anomalous for July or if, it's going to, or if it's going to continue through the course of the summer and into the fall and into election season. It's hard to say that it's, it's, it's racist, right? Warnock's African-American. It, you know, Stacey Abrams clearly African-American. Is it women not supporting women? I don't know. I don't know. Is, 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 it, is it, and here's a good theory that somebody tweeted out earlier in response to, to the notification that this was going to be the topic today. Great question on whether or not uh, ticket splitting is, is going to doom Stacey Abrams. This is a theory that I actually uh, am putting some thought into. And there's no way to quantify this. But the idea here is basically I'm with Warnock. Uh, this is a conservative-leaning state. It's a center-right state, even though I'm arguing it's a blue state and trending that way. This is, is clearly a state looking for moderates. And if I've got to choose one Democrat, if I'm a Republican sub- in the suburbs of DeKalb County and I just can't stand what is happening with the Republican Party, but I know I'm not a Democrat, I'm going to vote. What I'm going to vote for is a vote to, to check uh, one party against the other. That's what we've seen in places. It explains why Donald Trump can lose by 7 million, 8 million votes in the, in the uh, popular vote. And at the same time, in a historically high turnout election, House Republicans pick up seats. Like, how does that happen? The only rational answer there is voters, especially these swing voters, are consciously voting to check one party against the other. This is not a mandate at all for either party. And both parties make this mistake. You're going to hear me say this over and over again when I keep reminding people as we get closer into the election cycle that negative partisanship is a real thing. Negative partisanship is the idea that people vote against things. They vote against parties. They vote against candidates. They don't vote for candidates. They vote against extremist elements. Okay? And, of course... You, look, if you're listening to this, this podcast, if you're listening to this discussion, you are far, far, far more engaged than 95% of Americans. You, you, you follow this stuff. You're a political junkie. Most you know, normal folks, and I consider myself completely abnormal because I'm here hosting the podcast, and all I do is look at polling numbers all day long, right? So I'm not normal. It's not a criticism. But this is not what normal people do all day. This is not what normal folks do, Okay. More and more are because understand that the stakes are getting higher. But when you understand and have your preferred candidates and have a strong rationale as to why, you're not moving anyway. You're not, you're not who campaigns are talking to. Okay? 
The campaigns need you to show up. I guarantee you everybody on this call is going to show up and vote because y'all are chomping at the bit to, to vote. You wish the election was tomorrow so we could start getting things going, right? That's not where the average American is at. It's not where the average Georgian is at. And I say all of this because, because Abrams has uh, this lagging, this gap between the generic ballot and the gap between her and where Warnock's ceiling is at is a problem that I guarantee you the campaign is looking at over and over and over and over again. And here's the really interesting struggle. Here's, here's the heated debate that is going on in that campaign. Uh, and I love this because this, these, this is the part of the campaign. I, well, I love being in, in you know, I love, I love getting the ball and, and taking my shot in the middle of a campaign under this environment. Okay, because here's the debate that's going on in Abrams' campaign. Because they are so popular with young voters, do they continue dollars and precious resources in that direction, knowing that the likelihood of overperforming with that constituency is highly unlikely, except for Abrams has done it before, or, or the person at the other end of the table is going to be fighting, no, we need to bring home these white suburban college-educated Republican women. Why is that a good strategy? Well, that's a good strategy because they've shown in the last, just in the last 18 months, in the last election cycle, they're willing to cross over for the right candidate. They're saying, they, they did it. They voted with their feet. They showed up and they actually pulled the lever for Joe Biden. It's quantifiable. It's true. It's happening. Both of these are good strategies. Both of these are entirely legitimate. You can't do both. You can't do both because the message is, I'm going I'm to put one after that, after that vehement statement right there, I'm going to quantify it just a little bit. But these constituencies, 18 to 25-year-olds, are not motivated by the same thing as a mother driving a minivan, soccer mom, two kids, focusing on getting her kids to soccer practice, are motivated by. It is possible that Roe Wade changes that dynamic. It's possible, okay? But we're not seeing it in the numbers yet for just Abrams, okay? Warnock's sealed the deal. He, he needs to lock it down. I'm not saying this race is over, but he, he is outside the margin of error in virtually every poll now, and Herschel Walker's prospects are not looking better. They're actually looking worse, Find out he's got more kids out there. He says something else just incredibly stupid. He's a, an extraordinarily undisciplined candidate without the charisma and without even the base that a Donald Trump had. Herschel Walker, of course, is a celebrity in the state of Georgia, but, but nothing that, that, that a Donald Trump was. So that, that's the way that I'm kind of looking at, at this race. That's the way that I'm sizing it up. I think Abrams has got some really significant challenges can they be overcome? Yes. Is it likely? No, because they're moving in two different directions. Her voter base, the way she gets to 50%, the way she closes the, 70, the, 70, uh, the seven point gap, isn't big enough. There are not that many youth voters to be had to get seven points. I would argue there are more voters by going to the center because, as I just mentioned, in 2020, we moved 9% of Republicans from Trump to Biden. 
So it's been done before. It's been done before. Um, in the numbers that you need. In the numbers that you need, okay? The, the challenge, again, for the Abrams campaign is that um, she's got to do both. She's got to do both while, while still firing up her infrastructure, firing up her network, and getting that minority vote out that she needs. Um, one quick thing, um, and if we don't have any questions, I mean, I don't want to just keep going on about Georgia unless you guys want to keep hearing from me. You can send a note and say, keep going, and I'll get deeper and deeper into the nerdiness of this stuff. But there is something else that is really fascinating about this race, at least at this point. Both candidates have um, positive approval ratings. A majority of Georgians actually believe both of these candidates are honest, right? Which is, is, is that's not terribly atypical uh, for, for Democrats, of course, Republicans think Democrats are lying on everything, but, but, but to get to a majority of voter support in Georgia, you've got to be getting some Republicans saying Stacey Abrams uh, is honest. She's also liked. It's not that they don't like her. I'm not saying they love her, but her, but her approval ratings are over 50% also. They're, they're in positive territory, which is, which is in, this, in this environment, that's, that's, pecul- that's the peculiarity. That's not normal. What they're saying, though, is I like her not voting for her, okay? Not a lot, but enough to keep her in this struggling range. And again, this is, this is that argument, that, that ticket splitter argument that I've heard that I'm kind of liking more and more, um, and I'm going to be looking more and more at data, and I'll, I'll, I'll report back. But if you guys are seeing anything, too, send, send me uh, any information that you're seeing in that regards. Um, one, uh, another point I want to bring out. You know, Kemp and Purdue, this is a pretty nasty battle in the Republican primary. And this, this is um, a little, this, this, what I'm about to say defies conventional wisdom, but this comes from doing a lot of campaigns. Uh, if, you, if you had the choice as a campaign manager or as a political consultant of managing a candidate like Stacey Abrams and not having a bruising primary the way Kemp and Purdue did, or having one, this is going to sound strange, you'd rather have one. It's far better to have a contested primary the way Kemp did against Purdue than to not have a primary challenger the way Stacey Abrams did. Why is that? It's two reasons. The first is when you win the race, you've tested a message that works. Okay, You've tested a message that works, You've literally won the campaign, and you don't need to you know, prove that in a poll or with focus group work or any analytics you're doing on social media because you just proved it at the ballot box. You just won the race. That doesn't mean that that isn't going to change. Of course, it will change in the general, but you've just had your candidate win, and that's the second point. You have been raising the profile of your candidate in a way where the entire state is watching and watching your candidate, he or she, win at a time when an uncontested candidate is neither testing their campaign infrastructure, they don't know if their comm teams is on point, they don't know if their turnout mechanism is working as strongly as they would like it to, they don't know if the message that they're planning on running works or not because they're just waiting and they're not battle-tested. And nine times out of ten... Nine, I'd say 99 times out of 100, I want a battle-tested, wounded, scarred-up, bloody-faced candidate walking out into the arena 
against another warrior who has not fought in four years. That's what I want. I want my candidate beat up, tested, ready, and I know what strengths I have as a campaign. I know whether my polling was working. I know if my fundraising operation was online. I know if my social media team is on point. I know if uh, all of my direct mail and, and creative is working. And if it's not, I can make those adjustments. It sounds counterintuitive, uh, and maybe it is, but that's, that, is, that is something that only doing 30 years of campaigns will tell you. It is far, far better to have battle-tested candidates in a bruising, beat-up primary than it is to have a candidate who has not run a race in four years. The main reason is because your, your candidate's tested and your campaign team's tested, but you've also been the focus of a ton of media attention for the last six, seven, uh, eight months, the way Kemp is. And incidentally, Kemp, Kemp is in positive territory too. I don't know if it's just because Georgians are a little bit nicer and like people more, but in this environment, to have a Republican and a Democratic candidate running for the U.S. Senate with net positives is extraordinary. That just does not happen, okay? And what I will also say is it's really extraordinary for a candidate who was opposed by Donald Trump and was taking a good licking, at least early on, not to have higher negatives or a Republican base that is so pro-Trump that they will stick to and stay against him and cause him trouble heading into the general here. So again, uh, a, little bit, a little bit of uh, uh, peculiarity there data that I don't necessarily uh, see all, all the time. That's why I wanted to visit with you guys today on the Abrams race. This is sizing up a little bit differently than I have seen uh, a, a campaign take shape heading into the 100-day uh, mark of the campaign cycle. There's some peculiarities in Nevada that I'll be talking about a little bit too. I think I think Castro, the, the Democratic incumbent in the Senate, is in, is in a lot more trouble than I think the Democrats realize. The Hispanic numbers there are not good for a Hispanic Democratic candidate. Uh, they're going to have to fix some problems really quick. Um, of course, they can do it. The question is, will they do it, and will they do it in time? I'll walk through some of the reasons uh, why I'm seeing concerns, some of the red flags that are popping up to me, and some of the adjustments that they're going to have to make ASAP if they're going to put that say, uh, race into a competitive uh, position uh, in the Senate race. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll leave a couple seconds if anybody wants to jump in. There's got to be some, some questions in here, if not about Abrams or Warnock or Kemp or Walker, um, about anything else. I do want to give you guys the opportunity. Uh, we've got a pretty good group here, so I know there's questions. I just think there's probably a little bit of shyness out there. Uh, there's no bad questions. Um, but if you've got them, go ahead and jump into the queue and, and we'll ask them. Otherwise, I think we'll probably um, give it a few seconds and then maybe um, uh, call it a day, wrap it up a little bit early. First time, incidentally, uh, didn't bring on a guest. I think that was a lot of the feedback that I was getting was um, what we really want as we get closer to the elections is a kind of an assessment of, of what the numbers uh, are telling me anyway, what I'm seeing in the fundamentals. Uh, my guess is if you're like all of us, you're listening to a number of people, as you should be, um, that are putting up their own prognostications, listening to a number of different pollsters, listening, of course, with a grain of salt to the campaigns themselves. Um, but but I, I, I'm biased here. Always give a little, little bit more uh, credibility to, to the practitioners. 
to the political consultants, not the campaigns themselves, but to the people that actually do races. We're a lot different than the analysts, okay? We look at things a lot differently. I see things, the things that you're hearing from me right now, you're never going to hear a, a David Wasserman or a Larry Sabato, good guys, smart dudes, not knocking them at all, but, but the, the, they've never had to make these decisions over uh, the conference room table and, and fight with your career on the line and your candidate, uh, candidate's career on the line. Tamara, let's go ahead and uh, take a couple, uh, take your question. Just go ahead and unmute, uh, jump in there, and let's see what you got for us. Oh, lost Tamara. If you want to come back, Tamara, jump back into the queue. You've got to hit that um, little microphone um, at the bottom right. Josh, uh, you're up, buddy. What you got? What do you got for us, Josh? Hit the little mic in the lower right hand. Oh, there yeah, you can go. you hear me? I can hear you, man. What you got? What's on your mind? I, this, you know, I actually talked to you a long time ago when you were still with the Lincoln Project. I, I, lo- I fucking love what you do, man. I follow you Thanks. all the time. That means a lot but, to me, Josh. Thanks. No, for, uh, really. But I, I just, just, you just remind me, earlier you mentioned uh, about swing voters voting against crazy more than they do for a given party. About That's right. The, yeah. The phenomenal and negative uh, voting. It's very interesting. But the, uh, I'm just, you know, reminding me of uh, Joe Trippi saying something in that uh, vein of thinking that the, the, in terms of the midterms between the, with the Democrats, that they have a better chance uh, than what president would otherwise say with an incumbent party at least with the president, that um, because Republicans, Republicans keep nominating batshit motherfuckers, yeah. you, I, mean, I mean, it seems, I, I'm kind of with that too. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah, that, yeah. So do you think that, I mean, are you, I'm more hopeful about the midterms because of that alone than yeah. anything that has to do with Biden's low approval number. That doesn't matter to me at all. And I was wondering yeah. if you, do you, as your hunch and your expertise looking at polls all the time, do you feel also more more op- optimistic about the midterms than other people do too? Yeah, great question, Josh, and I appreciate appreciate the kind comment. Let me say first, uh, Joe Trippi is a smart dude. Okay, I, uh, yeah. whenever I've whenever I've had to size up or go against Trippi, I always kind of you know got to really make sure. That what I'm doing is right because a lot of us as campaign guys are kind of like boxers. You run against the consultant as much as the candidate because you know you've got a track record of following these guys, and we all we all watch each other's work, we all admire each other's work, and uh, and you know I've been on the wrong side of a trippy campaign more more times than I'd like to remember. So I you know there's respect to the guy. Right, props, props to Trippy. Look, I, I, I am more optimistic at this moment, and that's a big qualifier here. That Democrats are in a position to actually pick up um, seats, or at least defend their majority in, in the House, and, and here's why: it all comes back to what you just said, which is negative partisanship and this idea that the extremes are going to define uh, who people vote against. That explains 2020. Okay, people showed up because Donald Trump was freaking crazy; they were done with him. Trump fatigue had set in. They said, I'm not voting for that guy. But, and James Clyburn said this too, right? It's not just Mike Madrid saying this. This is key Democrats who look at elections were saying, 
the, the, the framing of Democrats as defunding the police and, and, and going kind of woke on a lot of these the social cultural issues was too much for them to take. So they were consciously voting as a check on each party. That's exactly what has happened with the polling. Okay, If you had asked me, Josh, this same question, if you asked me the same exact question 60 days ago, I would have said, in the current environment, the Democrats are going to get wiped out. In fact, I was saying that. If things don't change quickly, the Democrats are going to get wiped out. What happened? What happened was the Roe decision, Uvalde shooting, Uvalde shooting, and the January 6th hearings. The only thing they had control over was the January 6th hearings. Okay? But Uvalde and, and the abortion decision were, you know, as, as horrible as the situations are, that's like political manna from heaven. You don't get those gifts sent to you very often in a political campaign. And the Democrats are doing a good job of mobilizing around them. The question is going to be, can they sustain that for the next hundred days? And we're going to find out because here's one other thing, Josh, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it on this because Tamara's got a question coming up. But here's the thing. Here, here's the variable. I don't know what other issues are going to pop up in the next hundred days, but I guarantee you there's going to be something that pops up that's going to change the dynamic of the race. I don't know what it's going to be. It could be Donald Trump doing a perp walk, right, and being handcuffed and being led to prison, right? It could be, it could be him uh, announcing, which I think he probably will in the next three or four weeks. It could be, you know, Ivanka Trump jumps in. I mean, I, I don't know what it's going to be. It could be, it could be, it could be a whole range of things. It could be something in the foreign policy arena. Yeah, exactly. And so those those narratives, as a campaign professional, those are the things that you can't foresee. You've got to be smart and nimble enough to make those adjustments. But you hit it right on. Trippy's right. It's what I uh, was saying over the past few weeks: is the Democrats were given this gift. And they are more than happy, the Republicans are more than happy to have the Herschel Walkers, the Mehmet Oz's, the uh, Ross Johnson's uh, 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 creating this right-wing nutbaggery around the GOP brand that is not helping with suburban college-educated women. It's killing them. Right on. All right, man. All right, brother. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for the question. Thanks for joining us. And uh, keep them coming. Appreciate it. Good work, buddy. Yeah, but... Tamara, you're up. Hey, there you, hey how are you? Good job. Good. I got that mute button Good undone. Nope, no problem. Thanks for joining. What's hey. up? What's on your mind? Hey, um, just found this podcast. Love it so much and love that I can actually ask you a question. So we keep hearing, uh, you know, on Twitter and, and various places, you and many other former Republicans saying, you know, that Dem messaging is lousy. They're not fighting aggressively enough or maybe not dominating the narrative the way that Republicans do and not maybe on the right topics. And, you know, many of us out here are seeing it and we agree and we feel kind of like, at least I do, like I'm, we're on a bus heading for a cliff and, mm -hmm. you know, we don't know what to do. And so my question is, how do we get or is there a way for us to help get Dem leadership and, and campaigns to course correct before we lose it all in November? Like, is anybody listening? Yeah, look, I, I'm not close enough to the Democratic establishment, you know, the, the DNC folks, uh, to, to know uh, whether or not they're making the course correction. But, but you're asking a great question, and, and thank you for it. And let me, let me talk about this a little bit. This is from my perspective. And again, 
I'm obviously a little bit unique. I, I, you know, I did uh, independent work for, for George W. Bush the first two cycles that he was running for president. I was a political director of the California Republican Party, done gubernatorial races, Senate races, congressional races, dog catcher races. I also worked, uh, you know, obviously on the Lincoln Project and got to know, uh, you know, uh, uh, did Antonio Viragosa's campaign. We lost in the primary uh, against Gavin Newsom. Um, but, but, but I'm close to a lot of uh, Gavin's people and share thoughts and ideas on, on how the approach of messaging can work and work better from Democrats trying to be more competitive in some of these areas. Let me back up, though, and answer the question this way, because there is a difference between Democratic and Republican candidates, and there's a really big difference between their consultants and the way that we fight. The first thing to know is Republicans uh, love to focus on cultural issues. And one of the reasons why is kind of in the name. It's, it's conservatives, you're arguing for what is. You're arguing for either the status quo or the past. And Democrats are arguing for the future. And there's really no constituency for, for what tomorrow looks like in a way that you can rally people around except for on specific issues. And what I mean by that is if you look at, if you look at when the, the Democratic Party foundationally and fundamentally changed, it was really with the 1964 Voting Rights Act when Lyndon Johnson signed it into law and said, well, I've just wrote off the South for a generation. He was exactly right. And he led the party into what I think is a positive direction of saying, we're going to become a more pluralistic society. We're going to fight for equality and freedom for everybody. And the Republicans found an opening and said, hey, if you're willing to give up the South, we'll take it. Right, and then they started with the moral majority stuff and the and the uh, the rise of, of of Christian nationalism elements and this unholy alliance between the Wall Street types and the the, the evangelical Christian types of voters, the social conservatives, was born and Republicans dominated national elections. For 50 years, 5-0, 50 years after that. There were some exceptions, of course, after Johnson. You had Carter after Watergate. You had Clinton kind of start mixing it up with the DLC. Southern governor comes up and wins. And it kind of ends with Obama, and it leaves this open field. Long way of saying this. Republicans, when we show up to a fight, we're concerned about winning the race. When Democrats show up to a fight, they're concerned about getting the answers correct. Okay, Democrats believe that if they have better policy ideas and better policy solutions, that people will vote for them for that. That is not the way voters make decisions. It's why you see on Fox News and people are like, that's just batshit crazy. This doesn't make any sense. Why are they talking about Mr. Potato Head in drag? Why are they worried about green M&Ms? You know, cross-dressing. Why are they worried about transgender bathrooms? Why are they worried about all these issues that are not on the minds of 90% of people, but what they're doing is they're fighting on the battlefield within which they can win. And Republicans are really, really freaking good at it. Mm -hmm. The Democrats are really, really bad at it. Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful. It is, and I, I think that's what I'm, at least I'm seeing and I don't, I'm not going to say it's right that that's what the Republicans do. I just know that it seems to work. Right. And I yeah, don't that, think that we do it. And yeah. it's driving me crazy. Because well, let, let, me, let me tell you one, one exception that is happening right now where the opportunity is for Democrats. As Rick Wilson says, you know, who I worked with on the Lincoln Project, Rick would say that the, the culture wars are where Democrats go to die. 
the, yes. Repub- the Republicans are just so much better at it. And there's one, there's two huge exceptions right now. One is Roe Wade. The Democrats are on the right side of that issue. And the other is gun control. The Democrats are on the right side of that issue. So what you ought to do is start shoving it down their throats, which is why you start to see those Republican candidates panic and start to change the issue. And you listen to, to, to Kevin McCarthy, or if you listen to, to the, the Fox News folks, when they start getting John Cornyn on gun control, right? His own people are booing him because he's had the audacity to actually try to work with the Democrats on fixing something. Meanwhile, the Democrats should be just pounding him, pounding him, pounding him, and driving it home that he's still extreme. He's still out of the mainstream on gun control. And Roe Wade, again, that, that is what brought this back. Josh's question earlier was a simple one, which is, you know, is it the extreme candidates, it, it, the Republicans putting up batshit candidates, is that enough to win? It is if you make the case that they're batshit crazy. Don't don't get suckered into what the Republicans are doing, which is, well, you know, late term abortion, 15 weeks of viability, infanticide. No, just stick to saying this is what a woman's right to choose is and you're either for it or against it because the, the majority of voters and a significant plurality of Republican women are with you. That's how you fight. Fight on the high ground. Fight on the enemy trying to attack up the hill. You've got a, a huge advantage in a way that I have not seen Democrats have maybe ever in my career with two big issues. I hope the Democrats don't screw it up. I've seen them screw it up so many times that it, it kind of kind of bothers me. But they, there's a huge advantage Democrats have right now. Uh, they can only lose it if they screw it up. If they do it right, they should be fine. Yeah. I hear you. I guess I'm just wondering, like, are they even listening to any of the folks saying this stuff? But I guess we don't know. Well, that we don't know. (laughs) Yeah. You just you just kind of have to watch those those voices, uh, those champions and and elevate them and amplify them when you find those giving, uh, you know, hitting on the right message. I I do believe, look, there's some smart guys. Whenever we make those criticisms. We're not saying the Democrats are dumb. We're just saying you guys right. fight. You're just fighting differently. And you're, you're choosing to fight on a battlefield that is not good for you. And, and Republicans have been winning races where our issues are not as popular because we force Democrats to fight on our battlefield. And it gives us the home field advantage every time. And the Democrats fall for it every damn time. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Tamara, th- thank you for the question. Thanks for the time. No, I appreciate you too. Thanks for joining and thanks for uh, being a supporter. Any other questions that we uh, can uh, I can ask? We're rounding up on the hour here. Um, thank you guys for, for bringing those, uh, those questions. They are meaningful. I hope they are helpful. I'm going to wrap up this episode of Mic Drop by saying thank you again. Join us next week. We're going to have a ton more numbers to talk about. The races, of course, are going to change as we get closer. And I'm looking forward uh, to the discussion. Send me questions ahead of time. DM me on Twitter. Let me know what you're thinking. Might be a topic for the next show. Until then, we'll talk soon.